morning, everybody. I invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 again and looking at verses 18 to 25 this morning. We had an awesome time on the men's retreat last week. We almost killed Pastor Jim. Other than that, it was, well, that wasn't the awesome part. Um, <laughs> but if you haven't heard the story, uh, he actually was so enthralled. Where some, we were having a ping pong tournament going on, and there's steps that come down. There's a concrete floor down where we're playing. He was coming down the steps. Um, I didn't think about this till later, but actually I was playing at the time, so my theory is he was so stunned <laughs> with a couple of my shots that he wasn't watching where he was going, actually tripped, fell nine steps down the stairs, was lying at the bottom of the steps, and um, couldn't figure out where he was hurting. And we realized later it was because he was hurting everywhere. He's broken his wrist. He's got a big contusion on his calf. He's got shoulder thing. He's got a back thing. Um, I mean, he, he's a mess, but um, I don't think he's here. This is great, because I can really tell this story now. But um, anyway, we, other, than, other than Jim, we all had an awesome time. It was a, really a tremendous time. Great. There's just something like, nothing like getting out and being together and we had a tremendous time. We had four different guys, three of our pastors, and Pastor Brennan, who is from our church, is church planner, um, spoke. I, 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 I was just a guy, and I had a blast uh, just being there with all the, all the guys. So next year, I hope you guys can get in on it as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 25, we read this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, what hopes, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and... We glory in the thought that we are given hope in Christ, hope in this world, hope in a world to come. Lord, I'm sure in a room full of this many people and with other people watching online, that Lord, there are unique and special circumstances that call for the need of hope. So God, be yourself, the God of mercies the God who brings hope to our lives. And Lord, as we reflect on this passage, may we see a destiny that you have given to us that is the ultimate foundation for hope in the midst of despair. So teach us, God, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paul ended our section last week that Craig led us through in verse 17, discussing the same theme that he launches with in verse 18, 
suffering. Hardships that the Christian faces and will continue to face in a broken world. Life is hard. There is pain, there is suffering, sadness, grief, broken relationships, there are broken families. And though we do not live in a culture that currently faces plagues or genocide or a world war, the contemporary age of prosperity and comfort and health adds its own new catalog of suffering. It is an internal suffering, emotional pain, anxiety, depression, panic, self-loathing. Peter Drucker, a business guru, but also a great student of sociology, made this statement in an article, managing knowledge means managing oneself. Here's here's what he said. In a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it is likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they will have to manage themselves, and society is totally unprepared for it. He's arguing, I think, for the reality that in most of world history, and also in many places in the world today, people don't have the options that modern life offers to many of us, particularly in the first world. We make choices all the time. What career choice will I have? Maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll try that. Maybe I'll try all of them. We have choices of schools, whether I'll go to school, what school I'll go to, what type of school, what major I'll have, changing majors. We have all kinds of choices that many people don't have in the world just by the uh, financial, economic, social realities of most of world history. However, This age also brings its own set of challenges and suffering. Being able to make choices means you can make the wrong choices. Having the power to take risks means you have real power to fail. Having financial resources and the benefit of health means you can lose those things or not have enough of them unexpectedly. Alan de Baton, philosopher of social change, has written a, a contemporary book called Status Anxiety. And in the book, he makes this definition of status anxiety as a major uh, point of issue in our culture today. Here's what he says. Status anxiety is a worry so pernicious as to be capable of ruining extended stretches of our lives that we are in danger of failing to conform to the ideals of success laid down by our society, and that we may, as a result, be stripped of dignity and respect. A worry that we are currently occupying too modest a rung or are about to fall to a lower one. Every generation throughout world history has its own category or forms of hardship and suffering. We live in a fallen world. And in chapter 8, Paul is acknowledging that reality, but going a step farther. He's making this somber announcement, one that I think anyone that's really walked with Christ is aware of, that for the child of God, there is not only the normative suffering of the world, but there is an extra set. There's an extra category of suffering to the Christian, 
Why is that true? Well, New Testament reasons would be, number one, we are, the, we are unique targets of powers of darkness. There is a real desire to discourage and, and, and to, to bring about uh, the crushing of God's children by the powers of darkness. We are outliers to the world system. Paul says this, and Peter says this in 1 Peter. He's talking about 1 Peter is the biggest study in the New Testament on suffering. And in 1 Peter, he says, don't be surprised. He says, because not only are you having the suffering of just living in the Roman Empire, you're living in a culture that is contrary to things of faith, and so you guys are aliens. You're just strangers in this world. And he says, obviously, they're going to think it's strange that you don't follow it, and it literally says the same lifestyle that you had before, that we are outliers to the world system. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we consciously embrace additional hardships by embracing Christ. But in that somber analysis, which this isn't a real fun sermon so far, is it? Um, <laughs> Paul is going to say to us, Romans 8, if you've embraced Christ as your Savior, it's a wise investment. Even though the catalog of hardships may be acute, even though you will absolutely share in the hardships of Christ and you will share in the hardships of human experience just living in a fallen world because of what I'm going to tell you in verses 18 to 25. And he says, as a matter of fact, I'm going to say that what I'm going to tell you about in a future reality, you can't even, it's not even worthy to compare what you're going through right now. So we want to look at those things, but remember that we're, talking in Romans chapter 8, and this is why the dove is up there, about the Spirit-led life, that this is what normative Christian living is. The Holy Spirit is the director and leader of our lives. And he tells us some benefits of that. In verse 1 through 4, he says, because of the Spirit of God, we have a new freedom. The Spirit liberates us from condemnation and control. In verses 5 through 12, we have been given a new mind. The Spirit gives us a mind that leads to life and peace. We've been given a new identity in verse 13 and following. The Spirit constantly reminds us internally and from within that we are God's children in the special position that is. And then in verse 18 to 25, today's study, we've been given a new destiny that the Spirit guarantees us a future of glory. He says this in verse 18, basically what he is saying in verse 18 is this, if you know where you are heading as a Christian, you won't even consider the idea that your current pain is not worth it. He's going to defend that in verses 19 to 25, and I'd like to look at three things he tells us, and I'll tell you right at the start, uh, the first one's going to be the longest, the second one's going to be the shortest, and the third one's going to be the middlest. So just don't despair if we're down through the first one. You go, oh, my goodness, he's only a third of the way there. It's a lie. We'll get there. All right. The whole, Christ, the whole creation groans for the Christian's future. He says, your future glory is so blindingly amazing that when it falls and happens, it will envelop the whole creative order. That's an amazing statement. The it that creation is groaning for is the future glory of Christians. Notice what he says in verse 18. The glory that will be revealed literally in us. In verse 19, when the sons of God will be 
revealed. Now, when I use the term Christian, just by way of definition, I mean a person not who has a background in Christianity, not who goes to a Christian church. I mean a person that has personally embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. That in a moment of time, willfully, volitionally, intentionally, purposely, has recognized their sins, has repented and said, I need forgiveness, I need new life that Jesus Christ died on the cross to provide. And Paul is saying, if you've done that, if you have embraced Christ as your Savior, if you are in that sense a Christian, then What the world and the creative order is waiting for is you to be revealed. Now, what does the word revelation or revealed mean? It's actually, it's a combo of two words in the original, and it's important to know what it means. It's from the the two words of the word apo, which is the first one, and the other one is kalupto. Kalupto actually means to hide or to conceal. The word apo means from. It means to take from hiding or concealment. He's saying, at this moment, there's going to come a time in the future when you are going to be brought out of hiding. You're going to be unconcealed. It's going to be shown what is really true. Now, we know this is, uh, well, one of my all-time favorite movies, it goes way back, is uh, the movie Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Now, there's been a lot of remakes of Robin Hood that have been made over the years, but we all know if you've watched Robin Hood with Errol Flynn that there is only one Robin Hood and his name is Errol Flynn. And Robin Hood, the the movie is, there's a scene towards the end, they've conquered the wicked sheriff and and the the sheriff in Nottingham and the Prince John, who's the brother of, of Prince Richard, who's the real king, he's away in the Holy Wars and the Crusades. And Prince John's trying to take over the kingdom of England, and guys like Robin Hood, while they're robbing from the rich to give to the poor, uh, to protect them from Prince John and his selfishness, he's also fighting for Richard to preserve his kingdom. Well, here's the end of the movie, and this is this great scene where Robin Hood's with all the merry men, and they're in Sherwood Forest, and they've won a big battle, and they're gathering, and they've just... Uh, captured three friars who are religious clerics and they've got the hoods on and their big gown things and they brought them in and they're off to the side. They're insignificant in this whole thing of festivity and and excitement and they're talking and uh, all of a sudden these three friars who they're planning, they're just going to take their money and give them from the rich and give to the poor and uh, this guy comes forward with the two others and he takes back his cloak, and it's King Richard. And in this great scene, everybody drops because they're all loyal to King Richard. They all drop to the ground. They're on their knees, and he just says, stand, you know, and and he just praises them for their loyalty and everything. But the whole picture is nobody knew this was him. They didn't see this. This friar was actually their lord, their, their king, until he unveiled himself, until they saw what was hidden We're told in Luke chapter 17, this is going to happen with Jesus Christ. In verse 30 of Luke 17, it says, Christ himself will be revealed. He will be shown in his greatness and his glory. But this passage is not talking about when Christ will be revealed. It's not saying that that creation is just 
waiting until Christ is, is shown to be who he is. It doesn't say the creation is waiting for God to be revealed. It says creation is waiting for God's children to be shown who they are. It's a staggering picture. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us this. John's talking to Christians and he says, Beloved, we're God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. We will be transformed. We will be shown in the fullness of, of the glory that he has made us by entering our lives. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this scene. Here's what he says. God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Paul, Paul is here arguing. He says, this coming your moment, you may never have thought of yourself as a god or a goddess. But he's saying, we're going to be revealed in what Christ has made us. You'll still be you. You'll still have your personality, your wiring, but transformed by the power of Christ. And what he is saying is, the entire created order is waiting for that moment. It is what the whole creation is eagerly waiting for. Verse 19. You see, there was a curse put on creation. Actually, it was put on mankind, humankind, when they sinned. The Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. And the Garden of Eden, as all of creation, was created by God to be enjoyed and ruled by humankind. God created the world, the animals, the birds, the oceans, the plants, the flowers, the waterfalls, the mountains for humankind to enjoy. But when humans were cursed, their environment was cursed, their realm, if you will. The result is creation itself, the creative order, is also under a state of distortion. In these verses, it says they, it is under futility. The word actually means frustrated. The whole creative order is frustrated. It's not living out what it is designed to live out. The entire natural order became one of conflict, survival of the fittest, violence, subjugation, pestilence, abuse, blight. Now, of course, there's beauty in nature still. There's still beauty in the creative order. We see that beauty. We see it in a sunset. We see it in an ocean. We see it in countless places. But it has changed, dramatically changed there is remnants of the original glory, but there is also evidence of its distortion. Annie Dillard wrote a book that was called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It's an interesting story. Annie Dillard was a Virginia housewife, and she had this latent, unknown, brilliant talent for writing. She took a year of going down every day and just spending hours in, in Pilgrim Creek and Tinker Creek, and called herself the Pilgrim Watching, 
and took her notes and wrote her memoirs and all her observations, it became a Pulitzer Prize winning, she was a Pulitzer Prize winning author as a result of this, now a famous author. And in her observations, she talked about the beauty and order of creation. She saw the wonder of it, just the amazement, the things she saw, how things work together. But she also talked about the violence and the subjugation that she saw there. One story she told, and this is just a, uh, one of a number of her stories, but it's one that stuck out at me. It's a story one day she went in and she had noticed a big bullfrog in the creek and, and came the next day and she saw he was still in the same spot. And uh, so she s sat down and just was one of her favorite vantage points. And so she just started writing notes and just watched this frog, kept looking back to it. And... Uh, all of a sudden, the most bizarre thing happened with this frog, big bullfrog. All of a sudden, this big bullfrog was like a, an inflatable toy that you'd have in your pool. You know, you blow it up with like a, like a swimming horse or something. And all of a sudden, this thing, or like the uh, Christmas deals that people put on the yards. All of a sudden, this frog just deflated in front of her eyes to the carcasses just lying on, on, the, on, the, on the bog there on top of the, the dirt. And, and she was just stunned, got closer, and she noticed on the back of this big giant bullfrog was a giant water bug. And she had heard of them. She had not seen one before. She did more research on it, and she found out what had happened. This particular giant water bug has the ability to uh, inflict, pierce into the back through a stinger, of the frog and actually paralyzes it. And once it paralyzes, and this is pretty nasty, but what it, actually this, this lunch, is, you, you got time. Um, <laughs> it inflicts this venom that actually uh, devours the, the uh, it, it's a secretion that causes the uh, brains, as she turned it, it turns his brains into broth. I mean, just literally breaks everything down with the enzymes and literally he sucked the life out of this frog, and it just sunk to the ground. There wasn't enough structure there to even hold it. And she saw the end of the story. And she said it, it so impacted her for weeks. This visual came back of this is also nature. There's violence. There is, there is, there is um, subjugation that is there. Creation now has weeds and thistles strangling out food-producing crops and beautiful flowers. There are poisonous reptiles terrorizing conivers and brain-sucking waterbugs, all in a ruthless struggle for survival, won by the most crafty, greedy, menacing of predators wreaking violence on their prey. There are droughts and famines and earthquakes, and this week, a new one for most of us there are frostquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis ravaging inhabitants and terrain alike. There are weeds and parasites and diseases and leeches and mosquitoes populating the fallen world. Creation did not ask for this. That's why it says in our passage this morning that it was not by its own choice. It was humankind's choice that plunged the natural order into this terrible state that is described in verse 21 as being a bondage to corruption. 
Now, this is as grim a picture as as is imaginable. I know, but I'm. It's going to get better. Here's the idea. He's saying the the world is in this this corrupted, broken state. And we might look at it, well, man, earth earth is, this is screwed up. I mean, I see beauty, but yeah, I do see this. I I see it's the survival of the fittest. I see it's predator defeating prey. I feel it's dog eat dog. You know, I see it all out. I see see a world that is drought and famine and, and deserts and hardship. I guess this earth is just dying. I mean, it's, a, it's like the old DC comic Superman world, Krypton. Remember this? You know, that his father, Jarell, the great scientist Jarell, had to uh, recognize that, that, that his world was disintegrating and decaying and was going to die. And so he, he wanted to at least save his son because they didn't have time to save everybody. And so he sends his son off in a rocket ship. He comes to Earth, and Clark Kent is born. And it's Superman. Lo and behold, here he is. You didn't know. And this all, you know, we can look at, well, that's earth. You know, maybe that's us. It's just decaying. and It's in the death throes. But that's not what this passage says. It is a world that has been corrupted. It is a world that is not as God designed it originally to be. But it is not groaning in its death throes. Verse 22 tells us exactly what it's groaning. It is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It is suffering, but there is astonishing hope. The agonized cries can sound like death throes, but they are actually the cries of a mother in labor heading towards birth. That the the creation is groaning for something to come. It's not groaning like they're dying and they're expiring. It's, it, it's, it's groaning towards something. It's groaning towards new beginning. It's groaning towards birth. So when will this birth happen? When will this, this marvelous new beginning, this new thing happen? Verse 22, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay And brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We are told multiple times in multiple books of the Old Testament and multiple books of the New Testament that God is going to bring about what he calls a new heaven and new earth. That all of creation is going to be transformed into a a cosmic garden of Eden. And it is going to be this, this, the way garden of Eden was originally, beauty, Everything working in harmony. There were not predators against prey. Everything was, was in, in beautiful terrestrial harmony until sin came. This will be the state of the created order in a day to come. And we ask the question, when, when, when will this happen? The astonishing answer is this. It will happen at the unveiling of God's children in their glory. That the amazing picture that is presented to us here in Romans chapter 8 is everything is waiting until God brings about that moment when his children are transformed fully into the image of Christ. That will be the moment in which all of these other things will be sprung into their fruition. The interesting thing is this is not only the creation that is aware of the need of this, everybody on earth is aware of the need of this. The second point, and this is my quick one, verse 22, 
included in that creation are created people. All people sense the need of this transformation, though not all expected. Every person, be they ultra-religious or blatantly irreligious or secular, sense that things are not right. The world is aberrant. People are not walking around saying, you know, I don't know if I've ever met a person that say, if I could design the world, it would be just like this. Everything would be just how it is. It's just perfect. Everything is just, ah, it's perfect. No, people are walking around. Everybody's talking. Everybody's feeling. This is not, this, things are not right. I mean, there's hatred. There's injustice. There's, there's prejudice. There's, there's unkindness. There's, 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 there's all these things. There's mosquitoes. I mean, there's all kinds of things in creation that say, if I created this world, they wouldn't include this. There's a sense Things are not as they ought to be. And God would say, you got it. Things are not as they ought to be. They aren't as they were. But sin came in, marred it. The curse was put upon humankind and their realm ultimately. But he says there's coming a day when this will all be transformed. Now, of course, many people, perhaps the majority of people, would not anticipate that Christians are going to be, when they are revealed in their future glory, that's going to be the kickoff for all this beautiful change. Most business people in your office are not sitting there going, huh, that guy over there, that guy that's always reading his Bible, the guy that says he loves Jesus, good worker, nice guy, but fanatic. It's interesting to me to realize that the entire cosmos, the, all the earth, everything is going to be transformed into the Garden of Eden when that guy gets his. They're not thinking that. They're not feeling that. Probably you're not thinking that. Paul is. What he's saying is when Christians are revealed in the fullness, in the transforming presence of Christ, that will be the moment when all of the groaning and the longing, the labor pains of creation for when will this take place are going to come to fruition. That is why the third thing we read is God's children look for it eagerly. There are three things here, this I'm going to wrap up, that I want to highlight on this. We sense the reality of this in our lives. Paul says in verse 23 this, not only so, meaning not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says, it isn't only creation that's laboring and waiting and, and, and groaning till, till this takes place. We are too. We sense life isn't as it ought to be. We sense there's more, but we sense something else. We sense what it can be. He says this, we eagerly long for it because we have within us the Spirit as the first fruits. The first fruits was the term that was used brilliantly to describe the fruit that was first out of the field. 
that that was the part that, that the Israelites were supposed to give to God. Even pagan people would usually give their, their first part of their harvest to, to their God as a way of saying, you know, we realize you've given us all this. And it's, it was just like a, a down payment. It was, just, it was just a way of worship, of venerating their, of, uh, particularly Jehovah God, of saying we recognize it's all yours, but this part we're giving to you, to your priests, to the poor. It's really to you, but we're using it in the way you've asked us to use it. The Spirit of God is the preview. He is, if you will, the trailer to the movie. You know, the trailer, you, you, somebody tells you about on Netflix, you ought to watch this movie. On Amazon Prime, you really ought to watch this. You say, I don't know if I want to invest two hours and 16 minutes in a movie. So you see this thing that says 75 seconds trailer. I can do this. So you watch the trailer and you say, huh, I like that actress. Uh, I, that looks kind of interesting. Now, you haven't seen the plot line. You haven't seen the character development. You don't know the key moments of that story at all. But you've got a tiny taste of it. The Spirit of God is the trailer of what is going to happen when you are fully revealed in that day to come. The Spirit of God that enters your life and is described in Galatians chapter 5 as being the one who brings about the fruit of love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and self-control. The one who gives us a taste that, yes, I am still marred. I'm still a broken person. I still have holes. I still see my own tendency towards total self-absorption and self-centeredness and, and relying on myself. I see all of that in the flesh. It's still all there. But man, since the Spirit has entered my life through Christ, I've started to see something more. I've started to see love. I've started to see a joy. I've started to see a peace in the midst of circumstances I didn't have before. I've started to see a, a, a control of myself, my anger that I didn't see before. I've started to get a taste of what I one day will be. It's just the trailer. And your wife could tell you, yeah, there's a whole lot more to the movie we haven't seen yet, Mark. But the trailer's there. We get glimpses, and he says, we long for that day when we are transformed. We long for when, when what is brought forth is what now is hidden, the total transforming power of Christ in our lives. And he says, we long for that day when sin is eradicated, when selfishness is gone. Where love is what is left, that we're still us. It's still our personality. It's still who we are. But now free from the, the fallen reality of our flesh, it's gone. And our lives are revealed in the glory of what Jesus has designed us to be through Christ. We sense this reality. And Paul says, imagine it. You're only looking at the trailer the movie's coming, and it will be brought into fruition at day, that day. And when that happens, he says, it's not only going to be you that's affected. At that moment, all of creation will be freed for you to now live in a cosmic garden of Eden on earth and throughout the heavens. We sense the reality of this future because of the Spirit in our lives. Secondly, we, we, we are sustained 
by this reality. In verse 18 and 25, Paul is saying that the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be given to us. This hope makes us wait patiently, he says in verse 25. It prompts us to not try to be too cozy here, that we are outliers in this world. We don't have to find our, uh, ourselves cozying up to find our happiness here. He says, you are aliens, you are strangers, but all this stuff is going to go and be transformed when you are revealed and the movie is fully played. That speaks to us. It speaks to the heavy-hearted, grieving brother or sister here today, feeling the sadness of disappointment and disillusionment. The script of your life has been different than you imagined. Yet God is still at work. God is still for you. God is still with you. God is still the present God that is able to, to write even in the chaotic threads of, of the tapestry that make no sense to you from the backside. A beautiful rug for his glory. Lean into him for many years of fruitful and spirit-empowered impact. All that has gone before, that is going now, God is using to deepen your life message and enable you to know him and make him known. Your deep joy in him through suffering prepares you for joy with him at the day of your revealing. I want to speak to you that are older saints and maybe are feeling weariness of life. Your body seems to be breaking down. You're weary of limitations and diminished impact. In the years to come, finish well. Seek the joy of Christ. Anticipate one day stepping into that glorious inheritance of the beloved of God. Paul says, look what's coming. Yes, you are limited. You will increasingly be limited perhaps in things that you'd love to do. There is a day coming when all things will break into joy. And younger brother or younger sister, I want to speak to you still filled with the energy of life before you, career dreams, the pleasures of life, all who there and who would say, why would I think about heaven and future glory? There's so much I want to do with my life now. I'd suggest, and I get it, but I would suggest this. You're like the person wanting to be an Olympic athlete saying, I'll start training a couple of weeks before the Olympic trials. But an Olympian's whole life is pointed toward the coronation on the Olympic stand. Live now as one whose whole life is pointed toward the glory to come. We are sustained by the reality of this hope. And lastly, we must be constrained by this reality. I think this passage takes us beyond looking at ourselves to looking at others that we're doing life with and reminds us that we must be renewed in our passion to seek for others this future of glory. That this is our destiny. If you know Christ is your Savior, this is your destiny. The entire creation is waiting for your unveiling. That you now just have the trailer of what that will be like. 
But it's such a cosmically, sovereignly, theologically driven center. Everything God is doing in human history that everything is predicated on. Even the transforming of the world and the, cre- and, and the creative order. But that moment is a moment of astonishing significance because that is really when one is experiencing the beginning times of their destiny. C.S. Lewis, and with this I'm going to wrap, in his great article, The Weight of Glory, says this, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror such as you now meet if at all only a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed Savior himself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Live with your eyes oriented to the future. See your sufferings in light of the future. See your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends in the light of that coming revelatory day. All of creation groans in labor until the revealing of the children of God. It will not be at the end of all things. It will be the beginning of all things. Live towards it. Pray towards it. Hope towards it. Let's pray. God, there's people here in this room and there's people watching online of great suffering. There's people who desperately need hope. God, we need ultimately you to come alongside of us to encourage, to support, to be near. But we also need hope looking ahead. God, thank you for the incredible hope that this is our destiny in Christ. 
that sadness, disappointment, all these things that are so much a part of living in a, a fallen world are not worthy to be compared to what it means that we are your daughter or son, that you're hinging every change in the cosmos on the revelation of our transformation one day. Lord, may we be prompted through our reflection in this passage to look at people around us differently. That there are no ordinary people in our lives. There's no ordinary individual in our school, in our workplace, in our house, in our neighborhood. They're immortal people. God, may we see them again through the eyes of faith that sees them as objects of destiny as well. Lord, renew our desire to pray. Renew our heart to be available to you, to love, to speak, to serve. Lord, we close our service this morning and we simply say, God, we love you. We love how you've changed us. We love how you have given us the trailer, a, a little glimpse of what we can be in Christ, even though we seem to mar the image so regularly. Lord, thank you that our hope is not in ourselves. It's what Christ will do and is doing within us. We love you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.